If you have a Bible, we are going to open back up to 1 Corinthians 13 as uh, we are in for a really fun, uh, I don't know about fun, but I think it's fun. I enjoy talking about this stuff. Uh, Maybe you will uh, agree. If not, I believe uh, we'll at least have an informative uh, time tonight. Um, If you ever wonder if God is sovereign over local churches in the same way that he's sovereign over the church at large, we talk about God being sovereign over the church, you know, big church, you know, he's sovereign over the, the entire institution. But if you ever wonder if God is sovereign and, and, and is guiding uh, God's, uh, the, the services that we have, the messages that he lays on the pastor's heart um, and the series that he plans us into, um, just ask yourself, how in the world did two lessons on 1 Corinthians, uh, two lessons on love end up bookending Valentine's Day? I mean, you can't make that stuff up, can you, right? Uh, how did the love chapter end up surrounding a day where love is on everybody's mind? It should make you think, but in all seriousness, um, you know, years ago I was teaching through the, the, the book of Job, and I remember, I can remember this as vividly as, as, as it was yesterday, um, preparing for those services while at the same time ministering to uh, a family who was uh, losing a loved one to one of the hardest uh, battles of an illness that, that you could ever imagine, and, and at teaching through Job at the same time as watching somebody suffer was just such a, such a, a hard thing to do, but also it was, it was a fortunate time because it allowed me to see the situation through the biblical lens. Uh, you know, three years ago this week, um, three years ago this week, which seems like forever ago when you consider what's happened the last three years, uh, but three years ago this week, we were looking at Exodus, uh, the story of Exodus 33, 34, where the people uh, of God were afraid to leave their tents and were actually unable to leave their tents because God's wrath was so hot against Israel at that time because they had rebelled against him and built that golden calf and you know, you know the story. But they were afraid to leave their tents and they couldn't leave their tents because there was this plague sweeping through the camp and they thought if they left their tent, they'd catch the plague. So Moses was interceding for them and was coming down the mountain and was talking to them as they stood at the gate of their tent or at the door of their tent. Uh, and God was telling Israel, hey, I know y'all want to leave and go down go to the, to the promised land, but y'all need to stay in your tents for a little while and get your hearts right with the Lord. And would you have known that a month after that message, uh, y'all don't remember this, but, but I remember stuff like this, and, and I'm sure somebody does. But a month after that message, the whole world shut down because of COVID. So again, you can go back and check the tapes. I didn't even know, you know, I knew, I think we knew about COVID, but I didn't know that was going to happen, right? Nobody knew that was going to happen. But again, a month after we, we heard that message, um, we, we had to adjust our lives pretty radically, right? And, and regardless of the reason why, and if we should have or not, that was kind of the way it was. Um, so there have been so many times where God speaks to us in these Bible studies, uh, weeks, months in, 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 into them, right? Uh, we, we are, you know, we've been in a study for, we've been in 1 Corinthians for, for four or five months now. Uh, but so many times where God just speaks an appropriate word in an appropriate season. Uh, and, and I know Valentine's Day is a, a superficial holiday, but you guys get the point. When, when the theme kind of really lines up, and more importantly, like it was uh, a couple years ago, years ago, um, where God speaks to what is going on nationally, internationally. And, and, and I just believe that God is sovereign over his church. Um, and, and it's not me or it's not any individual that, that makes it all happen. It's God who is orchestrating all this. Sometimes the text is waiting on us. 
uh, waiting on us as we're looking for answers. Sometimes we come to a service and we didn't realize the text was going to be what it was going to be and we didn't realize we were going to need what we needed, but God speaks to us through the text and, and that was what we were really needing the whole time. Sometimes we get something that we don't realize we needed it until a month later and things are going down and all we look back and think, wow, God was just preparing me for this. Um, and now I'm not telling you this so you'll think, wow, Justin's just got this clairvoyance about him uh, or I'm in tune with God. That's not the point. The point is that God is is in control. And I just want you to stand back in awe of how God leads and guides ordinary people, ordinary pastors, ordinary churches. Um, if we just keep our eyes on him, and if we're just willing to listen to what he has to say, he will feed us with the inspiration that we need. Uh, God has never let his children go hungry, right? And, and I don't mean, you know, he takes care of you physically, but regardless, right? Uh, he never lets us go hungry spiritually. He never lets us starve out on what we need from his word. If we will just look for him and seek him and, and be hungry for him, he will fill our hearts and fill our souls. So I'm constantly amazed at how God is sovereign over everything. And I tell you, if you want to know, if you want, if, if you aren't aware of it, it's because you aren't paying attention to all the little things that God has, has his hands on. And, and I promise you, God's fingerprints are all over the details of your life. If you'll zoom in, and sometimes it's good to look back and think, wow, I, I didn't realize, but, but God, was, God was right there. And, and his fingerprints, his, his thumbprints are all over that situation. And, and, and you got to pay attention to the details because the details are the reason, are the opportunities for you to give God the praise that he deserves. Now, speaking of details, tonight we are going to go in deep to the fine details of how chapter 13 defines love. Now, we talked about this last week. Paul begins or introduces us to chapter 13 by saying, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. So chapter 12 is all about the spiritual gifts. Everybody wants to gift. Everybody wants to be gifted by God and be used by God. Paul says, pray for the gifts that God wants to give you. But I show you a more excellent way that you should be praying about and you should be pursuing. The excellent way, this is the pathway. So way just means road or lifestyle pathway. This is the pathway that all Christians are called and commanded to walk. Not all of us have ever Every spiritual gift. Not all of us have more than one spiritual gift. All of us can be gifted, but more than anything, more than all of that, we are called and expected to possess the spirit of love. Love is not like a spiritual gift that some have and some don't have. Love is something that all of us have been, been, been recipients of and all of us are commanded to share. All of us have been loved by God. We've all been saved by his love. Love is the starting point for your salvation. Love is how you get in the door. So everybody here knows what it means to be loved by God. Everybody here understands the concept for God so loved the world. Maybe you need to dig deeper into it and learn more about it, but you all kind of have a taste of it. And Paul's saying to every Christian, love is what has gotten us in the door. Love is what saves us. So having received his love, we are commanded and are expected to share that same love. Now, Paul's message in chapter 13 isn't exclusive to his writing. It sounds a lot similar to other passages of the Bible because it's all over the Bible. It's a message that Jesus first, pre first preached, and it's all over the New Testament. We covered all the texts that Jesus talked about love in last week, if you were with us last week. We looked at Matthew 5, where Jesus says famously, love your enemies. We looked at Matthew 22, where he says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the entire Bible. 
We, we heard him in John 13 say, by this they'll know that you are mine. If you love one another as I have loved you, if you pour out your life for others as I have poured out my life for you. Now, if you haven't read those texts, you should make note of these and read these and memorize these and bookmark them and repeat them as you go through life. Uh, to get us rolling tonight, though, I want to show you a few other scriptures that, uh, that echo what Jesus said that's going to lead us back into what Paul is talking about. Jesus' number one disciple, Peter, summarized the Christian faith like this in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. So Peter says, since you've been saved, what is the, the basic idea of your, of your Christian life? Love one another as God has loved you. As you have been purified at your heart, Love one another with that same love. And, and maybe most famously, John, the one who followed Jesus from the very beginning, the one who heard Jesus say, for God so loved the world, the one who heard Jesus say, by this they'll know that you're mine. John captures the Christian faith like this. First John 4, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because the God that I know and the God that you know is love. That line is so important uh, as we are going to look into how Paul details the definition of what love is. If God is love, then Paul's definition of love also serves as a definition of God's heart. John says love is from God, but not only is love from God, God is love. And then John said this, and this is so powerful. In 4 verse 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. John says, I've seen him, but y'all haven't been so lucky because he's in heaven now. John says, nobody has ever seen God and nobody ever will see God in the physical manifestation in terms of his spirit because he's too holy and he's too bright. No one has ever seen God. Now, a few of us got to see Jesus, but Jesus is in heaven now, right? So his spirit is here, but we can't see him. So what is John's point? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In the same way that Jesus made God known, if we love like God has loved, we will make God known. Now, I, I, I don't think I'm taking that in the wrong way. Do y'all see what I see? If we love one another, the God who is unseen the God who is invisible, the God who no one can see will be made known because he will abide in us and it will be perfected through us. Now that's pretty powerful, right? John says in line with what Jesus taught, what we're gonna read about in 13, of chapter 13, that love is the difference maker in winning people to Jesus. Now, that's why in chapter 13, verse number 8, Paul says this. Love never fails. Whether they be prophecies, they'll fail. Whether they are tongues, they'll cease. Whether there, be, there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But love always gets the job done in terms of proclaiming and demonstrating the power and the presence of God. Now, don't, don't mishear what he's saying 
He's not saying that God isn't in those other things, but he's saying that God is not made known through those things the way he's made known through love. And what did John say? If we love, he will be manifested through us. So here's what John is saying, and here's why, here's why Paul is anchoring everything. Here's why Paul is pushing every chip he has forward on love. Paul, the preacher, Paul, the church planner, Paul, the one who was all about obeying God in every way that you can obey God. Paul pushes all the chips forward on love. You know why? Because Paul believed and John believed the closest people will ever get to Jesus is when we love them. Now, I'm talking about people that don't know God. The closest people will ever get to Jesus the closest people will ever get to Jesus if they don't come to know him themselves. And the only way they're ever going to get experience Jesus, the closest they'll ever get to Jesus is when we love them like he has loved us. That's what John said. That's what Paul's saying. The one thing that has the potential to impact lives is our love for them, not our sermons. And that hurts my feelings because I think my sermons are going to get you pretty close to God. And they might, but sermons end and sermons cannot express the total and full love of God like an action can from one person to another. Miracles may express the love of God. The right knowledge may express the love of God, but nothing demonstrates God's love more than one person loving another. Us proving how much we know, us showing how gifted we are, us being eloquent speakers, none of that is going to cut to the heart of a sinner or the heart of a lost person like loving someone can and will. Remember the example of the woman that was caught in sin from last week. We said last week, was she lost? Yes. Was she guilty? Yes. Would they have been justified in stoning her? Yes. Would she, went, would she have went to hell if they stoned her? It, in the idea that she was lost? Yes. And yet Jesus still defended her over the Pharisees. Because both of them were lost, or both groups were lost, the woman and the Pharisees. And Jesus wasn't willing to lose both of them by letting one side get a victory over the other. Listen, the goal is not to win a competition. If it's a competition, we're all losing. Jesus said, hey, if y'all think y'all are better than her, go ahead and stone her. If you've never sinned, go ahead, take your shot. You're right. The Bible says she should die. So y'all go ahead and do it. But don't do it unless you're perfect. So all of them dropped the rocks. Everyone on the scene that day was going to hell. The Pharisees and the woman caught in adultery. Jesus wasn't willing to let that woman die lost at the hands of religious men. So he intervened. She wasn't close to God because the Pharisees boasted over her. She was close to God because Jesus loved her. Listen, people are not going to be close to God when we walk by them glowing in our holiness and radiating in our perfection. People are not going to experience and feel God's presence because we're so right. They're not lucky to be in our presence, okay? People don't get close to God because of a fiery sermon or miracles being worked and doctrines being proclaimed. People get close to God when they are loved like God. Has loved us. Now, can God be can His love be proclaimed through a sermon and a song and a miracle? Of course, but those things don't last, and those things don't impact like simple showing love to one another. Now, that's why Paul says the beginning in the beginning. Otherwise, we're just noise. Otherwise, it's just religion. 
It's not about performance, it's about proximity. It's about love that does, love that serves, love that pours itself out. Now, isn't that the message of the Good Samaritan? The Good Samaritan, the story that Jesus told when they asked him, hey, what does it mean to be a neighbor to somebody? Jesus told that story about the, the, the man who was going to Jerusalem or going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and he was stripped down, and he was beat down, and, he, and the robbers departed him, and they left him half dead. And along comes a, Pharise- or a priest, and the priest passed by on the other side of the road. And along comes a Levite, and he passes by. Now listen, the, the priest and the Levite, they were holy. They were righteous. But just because they were holy and righteous, that didn't help that man out. What helped the man out and what made the difference was when a Samaritan came by, came to where he was and had compassion on him, showed him compassion. That's the picture of Jesus, right? It's Jesus going to the cross for us. It's Jesus giving his life up for us, saying to us, do the same for others. Now, not every story involves finding someone in a ditch, right? If we do find someone, we know what to do. Of course, Jesus went to the cross. We aren't called to go to the cross and physically die for other people, yet we are called to love like he loved. And what I want to accomplish tonight is I want us to figure out how can we translate these examples of love? How can we reflect God's love back at others? If we're commanded to love, what does that look like? What does it look like to love people like God has loved us? We all agree that God is love. We all agree that God has loved us. We often struggle reciprocating that same love to others, though. Right? We all, we all struggle, and we, we wonder how far to go, and how, you know, how much is too much, and how, how much is enough. I think it would benefit, benefit us tonight to go through Paul's definition of love and talk about, uh, talk about how our own attitudes and actions should be informed by God's love. I know this may seem a little extreme, but if love is required of us, and if love is the one thing that's going to allow God to be felt through us and known through us, if love is the most important thing in any Christian's life, then I think it warrants a message that is focused on figuring it out and translating it in our own lives. And I think it also will help us clarify how we handle situations where we often wonder, is love enough? Because I think there's going to be situations that we all come up to and we think, you know, is really, is really loving someone, is that going to make the difference? Loving them instead of something else, is that going to make the difference? Because we, we sit there and, you know, our minds race and we think, well, you know, that can't be the only thing I'm supposed to do. And, and what is, you know, am I approving them or am I condoning them? And we have all these questions that we, I think in, in, in good, you know, in good places we, we ask them. Is love enough to confront sin? Is love enough to to address the tension and conflict between us and a group of people that maybe we don't see eye to eye with? Is love enough? So I want to begin in verse 4, and and we're going to really focus on the first two things, and then we're going to kind of breeze through the rest because these first two things are really the anchor, and that's why he lists them first. So in verse 4, Paul is going to begin to define love, and he starts by saying, love suffers long, or love is patient. Now, you might think that's a curious thing for Paul to begin with, that he's defining love. Why do you suppose that Paul begins his definition with patience? Love is patient. Probably because if God's love has been communicated to us in one way, It's through his 
patient. Now, a lot of people will say, well, the Old Testament God really let people have it for their sin. A lot of people say, well, in the old, in the old days, God would just you know, really let you have it if he found you in sin. And again, there's examples of God judging a city or judging a group of people. But, but let me be very clear. The fact that there is a New Testament the fact that the world got to the New Testament time period is proof that God was way more patient than he was judgmental at any point in history. Does that make sense? The fact that there is a year 30 AD is proof that God had been patient for thousands of years. Were certain people judged? Yes. But all those episodes were meant to magnify his patience toward the rest of the world. For every group he judged, there were thousands of other people just as guilty, mind you, that he was patient with. Most importantly, the Jewish people. He was patient with them. Think about it. God's utmost proof of patience, Adam and Eve. What was the, what was the, the promise from God, the warning from God? If you eat of the tree of knowledge of, of, of good and evil, if you eat from that tree, you will die. Now, I know people like me step in and they push their glasses up and they say, well, what he was saying was they would die spiritually. But I don't think they had a theological education. And I'm pretty sure when they heard him say, you're going to die, they weren't thinking, oh, we'll die spiritually. They were thinking we might die as in struck dead. Does, does that make sense? Because if you read Genesis, it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't say spiritually die. Now, they may have died spiritually because they, they ate from the tree. They may have fallen from God. Of course they did. But the warning was, if you eat it, you're going to die. But guess what happens in Genesis 3? Or guess what doesn't happen in Genesis 3? They don't die. Some animals die. Because God clothes them in the skin of animals that he kills instead of them. Do y'all see the picture there? That the animals died instead of Adam and Eve, which is the first example of God's patient love. The very fact that there is a Genesis 4 is proof that God is patient. They deserve judgment, but he spared them. Now go to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, that was not just God providing a pardon for our sin, but he was promising to be patient with the entire human race. Now this is such a big deal that nobody talks about nearly enough. When Jesus died, he initiated an age of grace, the age of grace. Now, from 30 AD on, when Jesus died, it was the beginning of a new age, the age of grace. We might call it the church age, but I like to call it the, the age of grace, where God's posture towards sin, now don't mishear me, I'm not saying he, he's happy about it, I'm not saying he's looking away from it, I'm not saying he's winking at it, God's posture towards sin is patience, not vengeance. This is why I get very particular about saying, be careful when you point the finger and say that's God's judgment because this is not an age of judgment. This is the age of grace. Does, is there, are there people deserving of judgment? Yeah, right here. But this is the age of grace. One day vengeance will come. One day judgment will come. But during this current age, his love 
endures. Second Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards, what's the word? What's the, what's the, the article? You. Now, Peter isn't saying he's patient toward those pesky sinners. Well, he could have said that, and he's still talking about you, right? Me and you. The Lord is not slow concerning his promises, but he's patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, let me, let me ask you a big philosophical question. Why didn't God stop people like Hitler? Why didn't God people stop people like Stalin? Why doesn't God stop people like Vladimir Putin or uh, you know, whoever you want to say or any evil person in the world? Why doesn't God stop certain people groups who seem to not only continue to sin but encourage others to sin? Here's the, here's the answer. Because God doesn't stop us. You see this thing? See it there? God is not slack. God is not slow. God is patient towards us. If God stopped them in their sin, he would have to stop us in our sin. And there wouldn't be anybody left alive. So what is this age of grace about? God is patient. Does this help you understand what it means by, to say that God is patient and love is patient? And oh no, we're about to say that we should be that patient on everybody. Yeah, we're about to say that. But just soak all this up for a minute. God is so patient. He doesn't stop us in our sin, even when we deserve to be stopped. Well, think about it. That bad thought that we have, that evil thought, that bad word or that bad idea, that, that thing that we say that nobody else heard, but God heard it. He doesn't stop you. He doesn't kill you. You know, we've really watered down the truth about our sin. We often say, well, we're only accountable for the sin that we find out it's wrong. Listen, do you think that we're only guilty when we find out that we're guilty? Is that how it works? Are we only guilty before God if we think, if we find out that we're wrong? No, we're guilty regardless, right? What's, the, what's Romans 3 say? There is none righteous, no, not one. We're not only guilty when we find out we're guilty, right? This isn't Ameri the American legal system. We're guilty regardless of what we know. We are all guilty in the eyes of God. There's nobody innocent, right? There's nobody who's, you know, not accountable. We're all accountable for our sin. The, 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 the answer is that God is patient with us. He's been patient with us for a long time, hasn't he? So if God is patient and love is patient and we're called to love, what, is the, what, is, what are we doing? Where are we going with this? We must possess a, possess a patience like God has displayed. I know we were waiting for that shoe to drop, but we probably saw it coming. We must be patient with one another and remain committed to loving one another. We must be patient with our world and remain committed to loving this world, just like God so loved the world. So let me ask you a question. Is your love patient like God's love is patient? I think all of us should, should be honest and say, it might be patient, but it's not God patient. So we've got some room to grow, don't we? We've got some room to improve. But let me, I just, I'd ask you, are you patient in your love? And I think most of us would answer towards some people, right? I'm patient towards them sometimes. I'm patient towards others 
sometimes I'm patient towards other people none of the time. And that's just being honest, if we're being honest. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute. But next up, love is kind. Love is kind. To be kind is one of the most repeated commandments in the Bible, in the New Testament. The New Testament tells us that it's the kindness of God, not the anger of God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So kindness is powerful, but it's different. We, we, we think that the opposite of kindness is powerful, but the Bible says that the kindness of God is what melts our hearts. So what does kindness look like? To be kind, let's back up a slide. To be kind is to loan someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. Does that make sense? To be kind is I see a weakness in you. I kind of want to tell you about it. I kind of want to rub it in your face. I kind of want to make you aware of how weak you are and how strong I am. But kindness says, you know what? I'm going to loan you my strength. Isn't that the cross where God loans us his strength by taking our weakness on his own back? Jesus said that it's the meek that inherit the earth, not the strong, not the mighty, not the haughty, not the brute. Listen, the hardest thing sometimes, the hardest thing to do is to be kind. We love to lash out at people with our tongues or, or sometimes some of us are good at just giving people the eye. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And that hurts worse than a sword. Cuts. We're passive aggressive in that. Oh, we'll let people know. I see your weakness. I'm aware of it and I'm gonna let you know about it. You see, kindness says I could be angry. I could be angry and rub it in your face, but instead I'm gonna build you up and show you grace. Now that's a, something maybe you can write down and memorize. Put that on a note card. I could be angry and rub it in your face, but I'm going to be kind instead and build you up and show you grace. Now, why would someone do such a crazy thing? Someone who has love in their heart would do that. So let me ask you, do you have a kind of love in your heart that says, I'm gonna be kind when I could be something else? If Jesus is in your heart the way that he can be in your heart, kindness should be natural. Patience, kindness radiate from us, from our actions. Now, let me just say this. You, you can't be fake about this. And I, I'm talking to me right here because I'm, I'm not pointing fingers. Me, you can't be fake about this. You can't force it. You can't pretend. Paul says love must be genuine. Love one another with a brotherly affection as in, hey, it's normal. You know, you love your brother because he's your brother, right? You might want to kill him some days, but you love him because he's your brother, right? Family, there's that affection that's natural. So let me just say this. If, if we should be genuine, and most of us don't feel like being genuine. You know what this tells us? We need to spend a lot of time in prayer if we're going to be loving like God loves us and like we should love others. That we're not going to end up loving people if we don't spend time in prayer praying for this to be genuine, real. Listen, there's so much on the line. What if we were a community where the patience and kindness on display from every angle? I'll tell you, revival would be impossible to avoid. We live in a world where people love to rush to conclusions 
and unleash fury. Don't you see that in people? Don't you see that, see that in, this, in yourself? We love to rush to conclusions and unleash our fury. Maybe not, you know, we think fury is a pretty strong word, but we love to unleash our opinion on people. We love to jump to the conclusions, unleash our fury, and own people as in, hey, we win, right? Hey, I really told them. Man, I really let them have it. Did you hear what I said to them? I don't, you might have not, but I hope you did. Uh, we love to own people, and we feel good about that, don't we? We kind of feel good. I really, really told them. I'm right and they're wrong. And hey, look at me. We love to rush to conclusions, unleash our fury, feel good about ourselves because we own somebody. But, but, but what if, what if, what if we did what love said to do? Love compels, love compels us to be patient and kind and let Jesus be made known and feel God at work in our lives. Do you want to feel good or do you want to feel God? You can't have both most of the time. In terms of, hey, I won that argument. It's not about winning, right? It's not about owning somebody. Now, a couple rapid fire definitions here, because they all kind of fall in the same group. The big ones are patience and kindness. And then he says this, love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Now, all these come under the same category of love isn't trying to make this about itself, but simply trying to chip away at other people's hearts. Love doesn't get jealous if nobody notices. Love doesn't brag about what it's done because it's not doing it for itself. Remember the Pharisees, how they were out in the street saying, hey, look at what I did. Well, that's not loving, that's just selfish. And Jesus said they'll have their reward. Love doesn't tell the world what it's done because that undoes all that it's trying to do. If love does all those things, love is rude and selfish and, and well, those things aren't love after all. You know why we so easily give up on people and people groups that are different than us and maybe that are far from God and we know they're far from God. We like to remind them that they're far from God. You know why we often try to love those people and it falls apart? Because we don't protect our hearts from being hijacked by selfish motives and reactions. Listen, this is so important because I think a lot of times we try to love people and we, we, get, we get there and we love them and then they don't take it the right way. There's a story in the Old Testament where David genuinely wants to be a good person and he genuinely wants to do a good thing for the, the Amorite people. It's in 2 Kings chapter seven or eight. Uh, David, or chapter, I think it's eight or nine. David's trying to do a good thing for his neighbors because he's really bummed out because of how things fell down with Saul and he knows that he, should, he wanted to do good to Saul and the people didn't want to do good to Saul and they killed people and he wasn't happy about it. So David sends an entourage to be a blessing to the Amorite people, but the Amorite people don't expect David to be a good, good to them and they take it the wrong way. And then David gets so angry. This is so powerful. David gets so angry that they misinterpreted his kindness he goes down himself and murders just thousands of soldiers and he comes back and he falls into the deepest depression of his life in the very next chapter he commits the adultery and has Uriah killed it all started because he tried to do something nice and it didn't get interpreted the right way. Have you ever seen that played out in a, in a less aggressive way maybe where somebody tries to do a nice thing and then it isn't always received the right way and then they just say, well, the heck with it, I'm done. Listen, you can't do that. Love doesn't do it to get applauded. Love doesn't do it because, hey, it's gonna get rewarded. Love does it because love is about building others up. The reward is love, not something that might come later. But the devil loves to discourage God's people like that. 
And that tells me this, that we must anchor our love in prayer and awareness of how quickly we might lose control if things don't go the right way. We've got to anchor our love in prayer so that we don't grow weary. I'm telling you, if you spend time with Jesus, if you love him, if you let him love you and you let his love pour over you, he will make you humble and gracious. Just think about it. Jesus gave his life up for us and God blesses us at his expense and he never gets jealous. Jesus never stands over our shoulder and says, you're doing that the wrong way or you're wasting my grace or you're not doing it the way. Jesus never loses his cool over us, does he? Otherwise, we would have all been kicked out a long time ago. But maybe you you, you wanna ask that question. How does Jesus respond when we misuse his grace? How does Jesus feel whenever he loves us and we keep on sinning anyway? Because I know somebody's got this question. How, what happens when you love somebody and they just don't change or they don't respond? What are you supposed to do? Just keep putting quarters in the machine over and over and over again? Well, verse six makes it clear. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. So love is not condoning or supporting sin. Love does not say, well, that's okay. Just let them keep on sinning. It makes them happy. That's not love, right? Love is not, oh, well, I got to let them sin. That's fine. That's not love. Love's goal is to see the truth change people. Love's goal is to rejoice in the truth. So just because God is patient and kind towards us doesn't mean that he approves our sin or that he props our sin up. No, no. But God's goal in loving us is that his love might transform us. His love is intentionally trying to break us free from that sin. Now it takes some delicate decision-making whenever you're trying to love somebody that that you know they might not receive it the right way. It's difficult. Love is doing this to change hearts, not condone sin. Love sees how important it is to keep pouring itself out to make that impact. And that's why love does what verse seven says. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love is in this for the long haul. And if you've got kids, some of y'all have got kids and grandkids, and you know what I mean when I say love is in for the long haul. Because they ain't gonna change overnight. God can change them. But your love is not gonna make them a different person the next day. And it may not even make them a different person the next month. And it may not even make them a better person the next year or 10 years. But does that mean you should stop loving? Well, here's what the Bible tells us. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. So here's the thing. If you love someone and you're in danger or you're harmed or you're in harm's way and you, you know, if you were to keep loving them, then they're somehow gonna hurt you or they're gonna you know, put you at danger. Listen, take care of yourself, protect yourself. But if the only thing at risk is your ego or your pride, keep loving them. Listen, this is not saying that a woman or a man should continue to love the other person when their relationship is being ignored or whenever the person is, is you know, leaving them or abusing them or whatever those things might be. That's not the, the message here. The message is if, you're, if the only thing at risk is your ego or your pride, then you need to keep loving them, right? This is hard. This is the part that we bail out on the quickest. It's so unnatural that we resist it. But I promise you, this is the gospel truth. God's strategy towards us in our sin, God's strategy towards us is that he keeps loving us more fiercely and more fervently. He bears all things. He believes the best. He hopes through the worst and he endures in spite of our sin. Romans 12, 20 says this, that to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you're heaping coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Think about this. How many people were standing by Jesus' side when he had to make that final decision to go to the cross? Every day that got closer to the cross, he kept losing more people, didn't he? And then at the point where everybody left him. As he got closer to the cross, he had the fewest number of people giving him a reason to go through with it all, and yet he still did it. That's the radical love that God has given us. But this is the kind of love we've been called to share with each other and we've been called to share with the world. Look down at verse number nine through 13. Paul is gonna equate this with what it means to be a mature Christian. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when, we, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror or a glass dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these... It's charity or that agape love. Here's what Paul is saying. The sign of a great Christian, the sign of a mature Christian is a loving Christian. And as we continue to love, we begin to see through that mirror a little bit more clearly, a little bit more clearly. He's saying that infant and immature Christians get mad, pitch fits and give up. Because things just aren't going the way they want them to go. But mature and devoted Christians pick up their cross and keep loving like Jesus. That's what it means to be a mature Christian. You know, we've moved the goalpost, haven't we? You know, we, we think that a mature Christian is marked by all sorts of things. I would like to say a mature Christian is, not, is marked by somebody who can preach a pretty decent sermon for 45 minutes, who knows a lot about the Bible, who can quote a lot about the Bible, who can make everybody else feel like, hey, he's pretty smart. I would like to say a mature Christian is somebody who always tithes, because I've been tithing since I was a kid, since I was seven years old and I started working. I would like to say a mature Christian is somebody who always obeys their parents and always obeys the rules and never breaks any one of the big commandments. But listen, Paul says, hey, you should do all those things. You should do all those things. You love God, you better do those things. But you know what Paul says? A mature Christian is somebody that loves like Jesus loves. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? A, a loving Christian are the ones who know God fully and are fully known by him. They're the ones making him most known. Paul says, when I, when I grew up, I put away childish things. I don't see the world like I used to see the world. What matters most is do we love like Jesus loves? If we do, we get to see the world a little bit clearer and we get to see the purpose that God has for us a little bit clearer. And that's what changes the world. Because guess what? That's what changed our hearts because love never fails. Church, I preach this often because I need to be reminded that the greatest thing in the world, the greatest force for change in the world is not a smart, educated pastor behind a pulpit, but it's a humble, gracious Christian, loving in spite of how difficult the world may make it.
God so loved us. Let's go love the world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for being patient with us, being kind towards us. God, thank you for bearing with us and enduring with us and hoping through all of our disobedience and believing the best about us. Thank you for loving us even when we should have, when you could have given up on us a long time ago. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord. I pray that we might would internalize this. Lord, make us all genuine in our love so that we might win people to Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. We ask this in his name. Amen.